You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. There is a family that joins our fellowship only for the summer months. They come up from Houston, Texas, and they join us about May, and they are here through into October, which I couldn't blame them. I'd want to get out of Houston in the summer as well. And they are a delightful older couple with sort of a rich spiritual heritage. Their last name is the Kemerys, Peter and Evelyn Kemery. And most of you here, I think, know them and recognize them when they show up in the spring. And they were here this uh, last summer, and, and whenever they come here during the summer months, Deidre and I always try and have them over for a meal and enjoy a nice evening of fellowship with them. And they actually have some very, in- they've been all over the world. His job and uh, his employment has kept him traveling to a lot of different countries, and they have a lot of different interesting experiences. And one of the things that I enjoy talking to them about the most is the fact that they had spent some years in Britain under the ministry of Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And they were actually married by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached, he was that great Welsh preacher that preached at Westminster Chapel through the 1900s and and died in uh, early 1980s, I think it was. And uh, so we always have them over and question them about that heritage and some of the things that they've done and experienced and what was it like to sit under Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this last summer, when they were here, they were here for the service that we had when in Acts chapter 17, I mentioned that one of my dreams, and someday after I, uh, my kids all leave home and, and they're earning enough money to support me in the manner to which I've always wanted to grow accustomed, I'm hoping to travel to Greece and visit some of the places that Paul visited and go some of the places that Paul went and see some of the things that he saw and uh, I had mentioned that that was a dream of mine. And so Peter came up to me after the service and he said, well, we were in Turkey this last spring. We had gone on vacation over there and we visited Galatia and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. And we went to Ephesus and saw the ruins in the city of Ephesus. And we took lots of pictures and we have some slides and we'd like to show you when we come over for dinner. If, if we can arrange to have a slide projector, then we'll show you the slides from our vacation. Now, I'm not one who really likes to sit down and watch slide presentations of people's vacations. But if you, if, so if you go to Hawaii, don't think that I'm interested in coming over and seeing your Hawaii slides unless you can make a good case that Paul was in Hawaii. (laughs) Then I'm game. And I knew that Paul had been in Ephesus, and I knew they had pictures from Ephesus, and so I was interested in that. So we had them over, and Jess and Marcia came over that evening as well, and we sat down, and they projected up on the wall all of their slides from traveling through Antioch and uh, Iconium, which is today called Konia in the country of Turkey. And, of course, Ephesus is in Turkey as well on the coast there, and most of the pictures that they had were from the city of Ephesus. So I got to see the pictures of the theater and a lot of the places and names and and uh, sort of environments that come up in this text that we read for our scripture reading in Acts chapter 19. The, the theater in Ephesus is still visible. The foundation from the temple of Artemis is still visible there with one single column, large column that sort of sticks out in the middle of this field. That's still visible today. And so I got to see all of that. And, and today Ephesus is called Selkuk. That's the name of the city. 
Uh, it's not called Ephesus today, but the ruins are still there, and there's still a little city there. And I haven't told you much about the city of Ephesus up to this point. Have you noticed that? When we got into Athens, I told you all about Athens and the history and the environment and all those fascinating people that kind of came into play there. I did the same thing with Corinth and Thessalonica. And I have purposely withheld all of the good, meaty information about the city of Ephesus until this point in Acts chapter 19, because this is when it all sort of comes into play. This is when all of the background information of the city and the people that are involved really come to bear upon what Luke tells us in Acts 19. And we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 27. So you need your Bibles open to Acts chapter 19. And I want you to read again with me verses 23 through 27. About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. In Acts chapter 19, Paul is in the city of Ephesus, and this event that is the riot of the last half of this chapter, all of this is sort of the bookend of Acts chapter 19. It's sort of the last major event that we're ever told about in the New Testament of what unfolded in the city of Ephesus. And so today we're going to look at that event and what caused it, and particularly verses 23 through 27. And I want you to notice three things. I want you to notice, first of all, the source of who this, of this whole disturbance, who this source was. His name is Demetrius, and verse 23 says that about this time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. About what time? About the time that Paul had made plans to leave Ephesus. So this is at the end of Paul's stay in Ephesus, and Luke says, having made plans to go to, to Jerusalem through Macedonia and Achaia and landing in Jerusalem with that offering that we looked at last week, and then having made plans to also see Rome, it was about this time as Paul is sort of wrapping things up and he sent away Erastus and Timothy, which is kind of his advanced team. He sent them on to, into Macedonia, and then all of this breaks loose. Now what I want you to remember is everything that I told you last week about what Paul has been involved in. What has he been doing in Ephesus? Teaching daily at the school for two years. Fighting off the opposition. He writes to the Corinthians and he says, I have fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. He was contending with false teachers, contending with the Jews who were opposing him in his ministry. And on top of all of that activity, just in Ephesus, with the spread of the word to all of those regions around in Asia, Paul also had to deal with the Corinthian problem. Remember the Corinthian problem? Everything that was going on in Corinth? And he had sent Timothy across to Corinth with a letter. He's already written three letters to Corinth. He sent Timothy on a trip, Titus on a trip, and he's gone on a trip. All of that on top of everything else he's been doing in Ephesus. And then all of this breaks loose on top of it. Now he's got this massive riot on his hands that he has to deal with. Have you ever been in Paul's position where you're just, you just sometimes wonder, can life throw me anything else? I've got all of this going on, and then what happens? there occurred no small disturbance. You know what that means? It was a big disturbance. That's kind of Luke's way of, of subtly understating the truth. 
This was no small issue. You're going to see that when they, all these people gather and they fill this theater, which seated 24,000 people, they've come into a theater not like the Cinema 4 West, you seats 100 people uncomfortably. It's not something like that where everybody comes in, it's 100 people with this big gathering. 24,000 people have filled this theater. It's a standing room only. This is no small disturbance. And it was concerning what? The way. That's Luke's way of referring to Christians and Christianity. He uses that six times, and that's how Christians and Christianity were referred to in Ephesus. Look up at verse 9 of chapter 19. This is Paul in the synagogue, and it says that when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of what? The way before the people. It's likely a term that Christians used to refer to themselves. They would say, we, are, we belong to the way. We are of the way. We are in the way. We are the way. That was the Christian way of referring to their own faith, their own way of life. And it likely came from John 14.6 where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, if Christ is the way, and to be in Christ then is to be in the what? The way. To be followers of Christ is to be followers of the way. That's how Christians would refer to themselves. Because in their mind, they had a former way of life, and now they're in the way. Do you understand how exclusivistic and intolerant that sounds? To say... We are the way. We belong to the way. We follow the way. Well, who are you to think that you have the way and the other guy doesn't have the way? That wouldn't go over well in our society, would it? People say you're intolerant to claim that you have the way and you have the only way, but that's biblical doctrine. That's the claims of Christ. I am the way and no one comes to the Father except by me. So the Christians then, when they became people, when they became believers, would say, we belong to the way. They would refer to Christ as the way and to his faith or faith in him as the way of life or the way of salvation or a certain behavior even. They kind of wore that badge of exclusive exclusivity. I should never use words that I don't practice. They, they wore that badge with honor in the early church. We belong to the way. Well, there was no small disturbance concerning the way. And the person who raised the no small disturbance was a man named Demetrius. And look what it says. He was a silversmith who made shrines of Artemis, and he was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Demetrius is likely a what we would refer to as sort of the president of the silversmiths' guild, the metalworkers' guild. He becomes the spokesman for them. There is an inscription from Ephesus from 57 A.D., which is a year after Paul leaves Ephesus, There's an inscription dated in 57 A.D. that mentions a Demetrius, and he's called the Warden of the Temple. That's likely this Demetrius. He is a silversmith, and his job is the overseer of the Temple of Artemis. And under his purview, under his oversight, are all of the merchandising and the buying and the selling and the trade and everything that goes on inside the Temple. He's the Warden of the Temple. And he would be the guy who would maybe design little silver figurines of Artemis or little mock representations of the temple and he would give this to the craftsmen because you notice that Luke says he was bringing the craftsmen no small business. What does that mean? It was big business. That's another understatement by Luke. No small disturbance because Demetrius, who was the president of the silversmiths guild, was bringing to all of the craftsmen of the city no small business. In other words, he was using his position as warden of the temple to see to it that a lot of money changed hands. And all of the craftsmen in the city, the idol workers, the, or the idol makers and the 
the woodworkers and the silversmiths and the metalsmiths, all of those guys were profiting from Demetrius. And so he calls them together, and he's really the source of all of this uh, brouhaha in the temple. It says that he was the bringing the bringing no little business to all of the craftsmen, and these he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades. Now I want to tell you something about the city of Ephesus and about Artemis and about this temple. You have to understand why it's significant that Demetrius was bringing no small profit to the craftsmen. Here's the city of Ephesus, a city of 250,000 people. Ephesus was about a mile from the Aegean Sea, and it was right next to a river, the Caister River. And Ephesus for thousands of years, or for hundreds of years, for at least 10 centuries, had been a place of massive amounts of trade and commerce. And being only a mile inland from the sea, they had a main street that ran from Ephesus right down to the water where Ephesus had this massive harbor right on the sea. And this paved street was lined with all of these colonnades and shops and, and innkeepers and places of business. And so men would come into the harbor and they would go into Ephesus. And Ephesus was the east-west trade route for all of Asia. If you brought something from Corinth on the other side of the Aegean Sea into Asia, you came into Ephesus. And of course, that's where all of the goods were transacted and taxes were collected and, and people made a tremendous amount of money. A real commercial center. Well, about... 500 B.C., 500 years before Paul's time, lumber and coal had become major commodities in Ephesus and around the Asian area. Ephesus was surrounded by a lot of trees and a lot of coal. And people were willing to pay high dollar for lumber and for coal. So when people are willing to pay good money for lumber and coal and you have a lot of it, what do you do? You sell it. So they started selling it. They strip mined literally all of that whole area around Ephesus. And they logged it clean. Massive deforestation. They wiped out all of the forest in and around Ephesus in order to sell it to the, on the market. Well, what happens when you strip mine an area that's a major watershed and you uh, deforest an area that's a major watershed? You get erosion. So all of the hillsides and all of the silt and all of the topsoil began to flow down the Caister River right down into the harbor, and the harbor started to fill up. And for five centuries... They dredged the harbor constantly to keep it clean, to keep all of the dirt out of the harbor so the ships could continue to come in. And by Paul's day, the dredging was not able to keep up with the the silt running in and all of the erosion that was coming into the harbor. And so they had just given up and all of the ships had gone somewhere else. And so Ephesus lost its major, major industry, which was trade and the merchandising of goods. That was gone from Ephesus. Today, if you stand at the ruins of Ephesus and you look down one mile to where the harbor was, there's a field there. Ephesus, where Paul was at today, is seven miles inland. That six miles worth of soil has eroded down right there and filled all of that with a field. You used to have to walk one mile to get to the sea. Now today you have to walk seven miles. They had no commerce, no trade. Other cities were profiting off of that. So what do they put in its place? They've got one industry in Ephesus, and you know what it is? Artemis, this goddess. Well, who's Artemis? Artemis was the, she was an ancient goddess, and she was supposedly the protector of all the wild beasts of the field. And Ephesus sort of glommed on to the name Artemis, and they changed it to Diana, which is why some of your uh, translations may mention the name Diana there. Artemis and Diana, they were sort of interchangeable. And Diana was this figurine, this grotesque-looking woman 
who had like 20 breasts. She was the goddess of fertility. And you know what they do when they worship the goddess of fertility. That's a, a very attractive religion. And Artemis was that attractive religion, the goddess of fertility. A hideous-looking creature, a multi-breasted woman, ugly. And there's an actually a phenomenal history or legend about how the city got Artemis and how Ephesus became the keeper of the image of Artemis. Look down at verse 35 in chapter 19. This is the, uh, the city clerk. During the middle of this massive riot, look what he says in verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? Fell down from heaven. How did they get an image that fell down from heaven? Well, there was a rock that had fallen out of the sky, and when it had landed somewhere near the city of Ephesus, it was seen, and they were able to discern in this rock, which, friends, was a meteorite, they were able to discern in this rock the image of this woman and these multiple breasts, and that's what they would see. Much like you and I would pick up a rock and say, well, it looks like a dog. You can see the little legs here and the tail and the head, or you might look up in the clouds and you see an image that nobody else sees and it's in your imagination. That's what happened. So they had an image that had fallen down from heaven, a meteorite, a rock, that had come down and they had seen it. They saw in this rock an image and they built a temple to it. And over the course, that was about a thousand BC that that happened. And over the course of the next thousand years, this cult of Artemis grew and grew and grew. And then in Demetrius's day, they would make little figurines of this goddess Artemis. And you can go online and just do a search for Artemis and you can see what a statue looks like. Because we have statues from back then that have been preserved of what this goddess would look like. And they had other cities where meteorites were worshipped, cities like Troy. So this was not something odd. Now you and I look at that and we say, how benighted, how superstitious, how ignorant, how foolish do you have to be to, to worship an image found in a rock? That's what we think, don't we? But yet today we do the exact same thing, don't we? We have people today that worship images. Images found in natural things. Somebody in Mexico decides that they want to fry up a tortilla. So they put it in their pan, and the face of Christ manifests itself in this tortilla. And so they take it out, and they put it between a couple pieces of glass, and they build a shrine and an altar to it, and people come from miles around to worship the Jesus of the tortilla. True story. Just recently, I think it has been within the last year we've seen this, in the news where there were some water markings underneath of an overpass where the water came down and sort of formed a face on the side of the underpass. Do you remember reading about that and seeing that in the news? The face of Christ in the water markings under an overpass next to a freeway. And people came from miles around to worship at the image. Mankind hasn't changed. The rock fell down from heaven. They weren't superstitious or stupid or benighted or ignorant. They're just like you and I. And they saw the rock and they said, I see in that an image of a rather grotesque looking woman with many breasts. And they put it up in the temple and they began to worship it. And that's how the Artemis worship came to grow. By Paul's day, it was massive business and it was the only thing that supported the entire Ephesian economy. And that temple, which is on the cover of your bulletin, you saw that. You might have been told that that was an artist's rendition of the new church building when we get it built. It's not. <laughs> if anything, it might be the elder's wing of the new church building, but it's not <laughs> going to be the church building. That's an artist's conception of the temple of Diana in Ephesus during Paul's day. It was 425 feet long. Listen, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
And it was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. 425 feet long. That's a football field and a half. It's 220 feet wide. Wider than a football field. I'm doing all of this in football terms for you today. And the columns were 60 feet tall. These massive marble columns, these stone columns that stood there, 60 feet tall was the roof. So if you can imagine an NFL Coliseum, the footprint of an an NFL Coliseum would have been about the same size or maybe a little smaller than the footprint of the Temple of Diana. That is a massive structure, is it not? It was huge. And it served to draw people from all over Asia. And literally, you see Demetrius says in verse 27, the whole world worships her. It drew people to Ephesus. And they would come to worship at the temple and to see the temple And the temple was not only a place of worship. Listen, the temple served as a bank. Merchants and kings would deposit their money there. You could go to the temple and get a loan. People would come, and this was a massive industry. And hucksters and con men and merchants would gather around the temple. And every spring, every spring in Ephesus, they had a festival that worshipped Diana. And people would travel from hundreds of miles away to the city of Ephesus And that one industry was the one thing that propped up the entire Ephesian economy. And that one event in the spring of every year provided the bulk, the majority of all of the financial transactions that took place in the city of Ephesus. All of the merchants, all of the craftsmen, all of the idol makers and the priests of the Temple of Diana would wait for that spring festival when everybody would come and that thing alone would carry them through the rest of the year financially. Because they had no other industry. So now you can see why it is that Demetrius is so upset. Look at verse 25 and 26, and look how this person who was the source of all of this disturbance begins to spread it. Verse 25, the craftsman speaking of, Luke says, he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. Now, if you find nothing else out about Demetrius that you can respect, and my suspicion is that you can't, at least you can respect him this. He is candid. He's honest. He gets together the craftsman and he says, look, this is big business for us. Our prosperity depends upon this business. What kind of a depraved mind sees their own crass materialism as more important than the value of eternal souls? A depraved mind like Demetrius. Now, I really don't think that he's a devoted Artemis worshiper. I think he's a worshiper of his own pocketbook. And he knows the sales have been down. And something has been happened that has been cutting into his his revenue. What has been happening? Look at verse 26. You see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but also in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. This Paul, he's cutting into our revenue. Sales are down, and what has been happening in Ephesus, verse 10 says, is that the Word of God was spreading so that everybody in Asia heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Then you go down to verse 20, and it says, the Word of God was prevailing mightily in Ephesus. Well, that's cutting into Demetrius' revenue. I think this happened in the spring. And I'll tell you why I think this event occurred in the spring. Two reasons. First Corinthians, Paul wrote to from Ephesus, and he told the Corinthians, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, which was in the spring, and then I'm coming to you. But I'm going to stay here until then. 
right after this event, Paul leaves. I don't think it's this event that drove him out of town. I think he was, he was obviously planning to leave anyway. But second, if all of these people came into the city of Ephesus at that time, that would explain how you could get 10% of the city's population to fill the theater for this big Artemis rally, which is what it equates to. You have all of these people who've gathered together, and Demetrius starts this big stir right during the spring. And I think that what happened was the festival was put on, and Demetrius noticed that attendance was down and that sales were down. And so he gathered together the craftsmen, and he said, look, we can't sustain a hit like this every year for the next 5, 10, 15 years. We're going to be out of business. Sales are down X percent this year. They're down X percent over what they were down last year, and we can't keep this up. Our prosperity depends on this business. If Paul keeps shooting his mouth off and preaching his gospel, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have to sell my beach house on the, on the lake, on the sea. We need to do something about this. Our prosperity depends upon this business. And Paul had persuaded many. Remember, that's what he did in, in Ephesus, verse 8. He went in and he reasoned and he persuaded about the kingdom of God with them. And now three years later, it says that Paul was persuading a considerable number of people away from Artemis. I want you to notice something in the text there that's very encouraging to me. Who's responsible for Demetrius's loss in sales? Paul. Joseph you know, Demetrius doesn't say, all of these Christians are responsible for this. He doesn't say it's the church in Ephesus. He just pins it on one man, Paul. Little Paul. And friends, not only does this show us how the, the Word of God had impacted the whole province and the whole city of Ephesus, because Demetrius had seen all of these Christians come out and, and burn $6 million worth of his products. Do you remember the book burning we looked at it a couple weeks ago? All of the Artemis stuff. The, the, the incantations and all of the old cultic paraphernalia that went along with Artemis worship in Ephesus. Demetrius had seen the Christians bring out 50,000 pieces worth of silver worth of his produce and burn it, and he knew those people are no longer customers, and those people will no longer be attending the temple. And then when sales and attendance dropped off, he says, we have to deal with this. We have to cut our loss in sales because our prosperity depends upon this. Not only had the Word of God so impacted Ephesus that the silversmiths had to have a, a protest, a, a union march, I guess you could call it, but also it demonstrates to us the impact that only one man can have. This Paul. This Paul. This man has single-handedly evangelized an entire Roman province. They know that if they want to get their money back, they have got to rid the world of Paul. This Paul has persuaded many, and he has turned away a considerable number. Friends, you ever think that you as one individual can do absolutely nothing? You ever get to the point of thinking, what impact can I have? I'm just one guy. My job is swinging a hammer, sweeping a floor. Or my job is just doing this one thing with kids on Friday nights at Awana or, or teaching Sunday school. What impact can I have? can have a tremendous amount of impact. I think that if you and I had walked into the city of Ephesus, we would have seen that massive, that massive temple and this massive industry of Artemis worship, and we would have said to ourselves, how can I possibly make a dent in an industry like this? How can I possibly make a difference in a city like this with this kind of idolatry and this kind of a temple? And yet after only three years, they're saying, this Paul, we need to rid ourselves of this Paul. One guy. Little Paul. That's what his name means, by the way, little just 
little Paul. And yet they said, we've got to get rid of him. One guy. Never think, never ever think that just one person can't make a difference. Because Paul did. Look what he says in verse 27. Demetrius now is going to give us some reasons for his whole disturbance. Verse 27, not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all Asia and the whole world worship would even be dethroned from her magnificence. Uh, he gives three reasons, really. The first is a personal reason. Not only do we fear that this, this trade of ours would fall into disrepute. That's a personal reason. I'm afraid of what people are going to think about me and about idol worship and about Artemis and the God. And we've been making shrines and, and little trinkets to sell. And now people are coming to Ephesus and they're not buying our wares anymore. People were not buying the Artemis t-shirt or I saw the temple hat or the Artemis strong bracelets. All of the sales had dropped off. And now Demetrius is saying, I fear that this very trade of ours will fall into disrepute. They were the guardians of the temple of Artemis. They were the custodians, the wardens, the keepers of the image that fell from heaven. And you may hate Demetrius as an individual, and you may have some disgust for him as a very wealthy individual, but everybody had to respect his trade because his position was a significant one. Because without Demetrius, you couldn't have Artemis worship. Without the keeper of the temple, you couldn't have the festival. Without the production of the shrines and the images that everybody would take back with them, they would go to Ephesus and buy these and take them home. Without that, the whole religious structure of Artemis would crumble. And now Demetrius is saying, I have this fear that people are going to start thinking ill of us as silversmiths because we make these idols. Now you know that the Christians thought ill of them. You know they did. Because the Christians are saying, look, we just burned $6 million worth of produce in the street. That's all money that we blew down at the temple, buying all of Demetrius's wares and him and his merchants and his craftsmen, and now we've burned all of that, gotten rid of all of those things. This is the guy that used to fleece us when we came to the temple every week for worship. This was the guy that was charging us astronomical. He was profiting off of our spiritual darkness. And now they're Christians, and they'd be looking at that saying, hey, gods made with hands are no gods at all. So they went from viewing him as the keeper of Artemis to this huckster who made a profit off of naive tourists. Because no longer does he sell anything they need, nor do they sell anything that he's worthy of, or that, uh, that is worth anything. It's all worthless as far as they're concerned. So he has a personal concern. I fear that people are going to start looking down on us personally. You know what kept Artemis from the truth? You know he knew the truth. You can see it in what he says at the end of verse 26. He knew Paul's message. Gods made with hands are no gods at all. That's what Paul said in Acts chapter 17, right up on the Areopagus in front of all the philosophers. Do you remember that? God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself made life and breath and all things. That's what he came into Ephesus and told them. Gods made with hands are no gods at all. Demetrius got the message. He knew the truth. He had heard Paul preach. He knew exactly what Paul was telling people. But what kept him from the truth? What he would have to give up to become a believer? If you're sitting here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I can guarantee you there's one thing that stands between you and Him, you and the kingdom, and that's yourself. Men and women who live in darkness will not come to God and they will not trust Christ as Savior because it would cost them everything. 
They're not willing to let go of their sin and embrace salvation. They're not willing to let go of their possessions. Like the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, Demetrius heard the truth. He understood the truth. He knew what the truth was, but he was not willing to come to the truth because of what it would cost him. He feared not only for his own profit, but also his own reputation. What would people think of me if I became a believer? And if other people are becoming believers, what are they going to think of me? But you can't be a servant of Christ and be a pleaser of men. You've got to choose one or the other. The first reason he offers is a personal reason. second reason he offers is a religious reason. Look what he says at the middle of verse 27. He fears that not only this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would be regarded as worthless. We have a religious duty to protect our God. That's what they were saying. We have a moral obligation to make sure that Artemis herself is not, is not seen as worthless and that the temple is not seen as worthless. Now, Demetrius casts this in terms of the, the overall spiritual religion of the whole city. Because up to this point, what has been his motivation? Money, right? Whose money? Everybody's money? Demetrius's money. His concern has been reputation. Everybody's reputation? Demetrius's reputation. It's all been personal. And listen, you're going to have a hard time getting the rest of the city behind you if all you can offer to them as a reason to oppose Paul is your own personal well-being and your own pocketbook. Because people are going to say, you're concerned about your pocketbook, I'm concerned about my pocketbook. You want to have a riot, do it on your own time, in your own place. I'm not concerned about that. So Demetrius can't go to the rest of the city and say, look, this is hurting me financially. Help me out. People are going to say, you take care of your own backyard. I don't care how it hurts you. You could use a drop in sales. You're living pretty high in the hog anyway. Obviously prosperous. Demetrius has to find some way to cast his personal interests in a light that everybody else will jump on board with. And so he does. We want to make sure that the temple is not seen as worthless. The temple is the center of Ephesus. And to view the temple as worthless is to view Ephesus as worthless because without the temple, there is no Ephesus. All of their commerce, all of their people, all of their trade, their industry, everything about Ephesus revolves around the temple. A spiritual reason. Third, he gives a national reason. Look at the national reason. Look at the end of verse 27. And that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. She whom all of Asia... It's not just about us, Ephesians. We've got to look out for the rest of Asia. And we've got to make sure that she whom all of the Roman Empire worships will not be dethroned from her magnificence. What a noble-sounding cause that is, huh? Now, all of a sudden, now that's a, that's a cause that the rest of the public can get behind. Tell them that you're hurting financially and you're not likely to get a big crowd turnout to support you, but you tell them that you've got to protect Artemis and you've got to protect the Ephesian economy. and You've got to see to it that this individual whom all of Asia and the whole world worships would not be dethroned from her magnificence, and people will jump on board with that. In 51 AD, four years before this, or five years before this, roughly, there were coins that were minted in Ephesus that had the the logo and the emblem and the inscription of Artemis, suggesting that the worship of Artemis had Roman backing or was at least promoted by the entire Roman Empire. Archaeologists have discovered 33 cities in which there were national or civic shrines to Artemis, 33 different cities around the Roman Empire. Demetrius is not exaggerating when he says the whole world worships Artemis. Artemis and Diana worship was probably the most popular cult in all of the Roman Empire at the time. And Paul has hit them right at the heart of their biggest, most supported 
worship cult. We need to make sure that Artemis will not be dethroned from her magnificence. Now, what I want you to notice about all these reasons, personal, spiritual, and national, is that they all go back to Demetrius's pocketbook. What happens if Demetrius's reputation falls into disrepute? His trade. What's that going to affect? His pocketbook. What happens if the temple scene is worthless? What's that going to impact? His pocketbook. What's going to happen if Artemis is dethroned from her magnificence? How would that affect Demetrius? His pocketbook. It all goes back to the bottom line. Look, friends, sometimes people oppose the truth, and the reason they oppose the truth is not because they really fervently believe the error. They oppose the truth because embracing the truth would cost them too much. That's where Demetrius is at. We can't give this up. We're making good coin on this. This is worth a lot of cabbage for us. This brings us a lot of revenue. I'm responsible for propping up the whole Ephesian economy. Now, there's something going on in our day, and I want to close with this. There's something going on in our day that I think is the playing out of Acts chapter 19. The characters have changed, and the terms have changed, and the situation has changed a little bit. But listen, the motives and the methods have not changed at all. If you have been watching the controversy surrounding intelligent design and evolution, you have seen Acts 19 played out in front of you, and it has been staggering to me to watch this happen. Darwinian evolution has cracks in its foundation. Never had a foundation to begin with, but the foundation that they had tried to lay, which never really cured, was cracking. And the cracks get wider every week. And as this whole idea of intelligent design, which they say is unscientific, it's unscientific to suggest that design would point to a designer. It's unscientific. You see design and you assume designer behind the design. That's not science. But intelligent design has a lot of intelligent arguments for it and a lot of good reasons, a lot of scientific backing, and a lot of scientists who have jumped on board. Not Christians, not creationism, not Genesis creation or seven-day creation or anything like that, not young earthism or anything like that, just intelligent design. And it has been kind of a wedge that is being pushed into these cracks in Darwinian evolution. And the Demetriuses of our day, the evolutionists and the atheists of our day, if you could step inside of their little guild meetings and listen to them, you would hear things like this. They would say, gentlemen, the book signings and the book sales and the tenure that we enjoy and the positions as professors and curators of museums is in danger of falling into disrepute because our prosperity depends upon this business. And this intelligent design movement, which tells people that you cannot have design without a designer, that's persuading and turning away a considerable number of people. And we are concerned that this massive edifice of ours, this evolutionary theory, will be seen as worthless. And people are going to be asking us, why are you propping up a theory that has had no proof for 100 years? Why do you keep propping that up and lying to people? And we must see to it that Darwin is not dethroned from his magnificence. Because every scientist, not only in America, but also the whole world, must do reverence to Darwin. Now, that's not what they say on the television camera. What they say on the television camera is you can't let a bunch of religious nuts into your public school system to teach creationism. It's not creationism. And they cast it in ways, even though it's financially motivated and ideologically motivated and personally motivated, because they're immoral people who suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness, because of those motivations, they can't 
say to the, everybody else, we have personal reasons why we can't allow intelligent design. Instead, they say, you can't allow religious nuts into the school system. How could the United States possibly lead the world scientifically if we believe in creationism or intelligent design? And then all of the public jumps on board with it. That's what's happening right before our very eyes. It's the same thing unfolding. A false system of worship that is being hit hard by the truth and it is beginning to crumble and we have modern day Demetriuses who are rushing to its defense to push out and to oppress and to slam and to rally people around to its defense at all costs. But listen, it doesn't matter whether it's Artemis or Demetrius or Darwin. Every false ism eventually crumbles. Falsehood always crumbles and the truth always prevails. Even though it seems like wrong is on the throne and truth is on the scaffold, truth will always prevail. It did in Paul's day. Because, friends, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of these mental strongholds and these false isms and these vain philosophies that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And you'll notice that the truth has lived on long after Demetrius, right? So it doesn't matter what attack comes. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what kind of riots or rallies or public gatherings they have. It doesn't matter what school board gets voted out. It doesn't matter what scientist says what. It doesn't matter what book is published or what news is broadcast. The truth always prevails. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for this example and illustration, even in Paul's day, of how the truth can be attacked, and yet it can survive just fine. We thank you that the advancement of the church and the advancement of your word and the advancement of the truth does not depend upon us. It does not depend upon our strength or our cunningness or our craftiness. It is your work, and it is your sovereign and gracious and almighty plan. And we thank you that nothing can stand against the truth. And we thank you for that truth today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.